Chapter Nineteen of A Son at the Front. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chad from Ballyclare. A Son at the Front by Edith Wharton. Chapter Nineteen. One day, Madame Lebel said, "The first horse chestnuts are in bloom, and Monsieur must really buy himself some new shirts." Campton looked at her in surprise she spoke in a different voice he wondered if she had had good news of her grandchildren then he saw that the furrows in her old face were as deep as ever and that the change in her voice was simply an unconscious response to the general stirring of sap the spring need to go on living through everything and in spite of everything on en raison as madame lebel would have said life had to go on and new shirts had to be bought no one knew why it was necessary but everyone felt that it was and here were the horse chestnuts once more actively confirming it habit laid its compelling grasp on the wires of the poor broken marionettes with which the furies had been playing and they responded though with feebler flappings to the accustomed jerk in campton the stirring of the sap had been a cold and languid process chiefly felt in his reluctance to go on with his relief work he had tried to close his ears to the whispers of his own lassitude vexed after the first impulse of self-dedication to find that no vocation declared itself that his task became each day more tedious as well as more painful theoretically the pain ought to have stimulated him perpetual immersion in that sea of anguish should have quickened his effort to help the poor creatures sinking under its waves the woe of the war had had that effect on adele antony the young bolston and mademoiselle d'avril on the greater number of his friends but their ardour left him cold he wanted to help he wanted it he was sure as earnestly as they but the longing was not an inspiration to him and he felt more and more that to work listlessly was to work ineffectually i give the poor devils so many bits and money orders a day you give them yourself and so does bolston he complained to miss anthony who murmured ah bolston as if that point of the remark were alone worth noticing at his age too it's extraordinary the way the boys got out of himself or into himself rather he was a puttering boy before now he's a man with a man's sense of things yes but his patience his way of getting into their minds their prejudices their meannesses, their miseries. He doesn't seem to me like the kind who was meant to be a missionary. Not a bit of it. But he's burnt up with shame at our not being in the war, as all the young Americans are. Campton made an impatient movement. Benny Upshire again. Can't we let our government decide all that for us? What else did we elect it for, I wonder? I wonder echoed miss anthony talks of this kind were irritating and unprofitable and campton did not again raise the question miss anthony's vision was too simplifying to penetrate far into his doubts and after nearly a year's incessant contact with the most savage realities her mind still seemed at ease in its old formulas simplicity after all was the best safeguard in such hours mrs brant was as absorbed in her task as adele anthony since the brant villa at Duville had been turned into a hospital she was always on the road in a refulgent new motor emblazoned with a red cross carrying supplies rushing down with great surgeons hurrying back 
to committee meetings and conferences with the service de sante for she and mr brandt were now among the leaders in american relief work in paris and throwing open the avenue marigny drawing rooms for concerts lectures and such sober philanthropic gaieties as society was beginning to countenance on the day when madame lebel told campton that the horse chestnuts were in blossom and he must buy some new shirts he was particularly in need of such incentives he had made up his mind to go see mrs brandt about a concert for the friends of french art which was to be held in her house ever since george had asked him to see something of his mother campton had used the pretext of charitable collaboration as the best way of getting over their fundamental lack of anything to say to each other the appearance of the champs confirmed madame lebel's announcement everywhere the perpetual rosy spikes were rising above unfolded green and campton looking up at them remembered once thinking how nature had adapted herself to the scene in overhanging with her own pink lamps and green fans the lamps and fans of the cafe chanton beneath the latter lights had long since been extinguished the fans folded up and as he passed the bent and broken arches of electric light the arch chairs and dead plants in paintless boxes all heaped up like the scenery of a bankrupt theatre he felt the pang of nature's obstinate renewal in a world of death yet he also felt the stir of the blossoming trees in the form of a more restless discontent a duller despair a new sense of inadequacy how could war go on when spring had come mrs brunt having reduced her household and given over her drawing-rooms to charity received in her boudoir a small room contrived by a clever upholsterer to stimulate a seclusion of which she had never felt the need photographs strewed the low tables and facing the door campton saw george's last portrait in uniform enclosed in an expensive frame campton had received the same photograph and thrust it into a drawer he thought a young man on a safe staff job rather ridiculous in uniform and at the same time the sight filled him with a secret dread mrs brandt was bidding good-bye to a lady in mourning whom campton did not know his approach through the carpeted antechamber had been unnoticed and as he entered the room he heard mrs brandt say in french apparently in reply to a remark of her visitor bridge chere madame no not yet i confess i haven't the courage to take up my old life we mothers with sons at the front ah exclaimed the other lady there i don't agree with you i think one owes it to them to go on as if one were as little afraid as they are that is what all my sons prefer even she added lowering her voice but lifting her head higher even i'm sure the one who is buried by the marne with a flush on her handsome face she pressed mrs brandt's hand and passed out mrs brandt had caught sight of campton as she received the rebuke her colour rose slightly and she said with a smile so many women can't get on without amusement no he agreed there was a pause and then he asked who was it the marquise de tronley the widow where are the sons she spoke of there are three left one in chaussure alpuy the youngest who volunteered at seventeen in the artillery in Argonon, the third badly wounded in hospital at compagne and the eldest killed i simply can't understand why campton interrupted did you speak as if george were at the front 
Do you usually speak of him in that way? Her silence and her deepening flush made him feel the unkindness of the question. I didn't mean, forgive me, he said. Only sometimes, when I see women like that, I'm... Well, she questioned. He was silent in his turn, and she did not insist. They sat facing each other, each forgetting the purpose of their meeting. For the hundredth time he felt the uselessness of trying to carry out George's filial injunction. Between himself and George's mother, these months of fiery trial seemed to have loosed instead of tightening the links. He wandered back to Montmartre through the breathed and beautiful city. The light lay on it in wide silvery washes, harmonising the grey stone, the pale foliage, and the sky piled with clouds which seemed to rebuild in translucid masses the monuments below. He caught himself once more viewing the details of the scene in the terms of his trade. River, pavements, terraces, heavy with trees, the whole crowded skyline from Notre Dame to the Pantheon, instead of presenting himself in their bare reality, were transposed into a painter's vision. And the faces around him became again the starting point of rapid, incessant combinations of line and colour, as if the visible world were once more at its old trick of weaving itself into magic designs. The reawakening of this instinct deepened Campton's sense of unrest, and made him feel more than ever unfitted for a life in which such things were no longer of account, in which it seemed a disloyalty even to think of them. He returned to the studio, having promised to deal with some office work, which he had carried home the night before. The papers lay on the table, but he turned to the window and looked out over his budding lilacs at the new strange Paris. He remembered that it was almost a year since he had leaned in the same place, gazing down on the wise and frivolous old city in her summer déshabille, while he planned his journey to Africa with George, and something George had once quoted from Faust came drifting through his mind. Take care, you've broken my beautiful world. There'll be splinters. Ah, yes, splinters. Splinters. Everybody's hands were red with them. What retribution devised by man could be commensurate with the crime of destroying this beautiful world? Campton sat down to the task of collating office files. His bell rang, and he started up, as much surprised as if the simplest events had become unusual. It would be natural enough that Dastry or Bolston should drop in, or even Adele Antony, but his heart beat as if it might be George. He limped to the door and found Mrs. Tolkett. She said, May I come in? And did so without waiting for an answer. The rapidity of her entrance surprised him less than the change in her appearance. But for the one glimpse of her dishevelled elegance, when she had rushed into Mrs. Brandt's drawing-room on the day after war was declared, he had seen her only in a nursing uniform, as absorbed in her work as if it had been a long-thwarted vocation. Now she stood before him in raiment so delicately spring-like that it seemed an emanation of the day. Care had dropped from her with her professional garb, and she smiled as though he must guess the reason. In ordinary times he would have thought, she's in love, but that explanation was one which seemed to belong to other days. It reminded him, however, how little he knew of Mrs. Tolkett, who, after René d'Avril's death, had vanished from his life as abruptly as she had entered it. Allusions to the Tolkett's picked up now and again at Adele Antony's. 
led him to conjecture an invisible husband in the background but all he knew of mrs talcott was what she had told him of her artistic yearnings and what he had been able to divine from her empty questioning eyes from certain sweet inflections when she spoke of her wounded soldiers and from the precise unfinished language with which she clothed her unfinished and unprecise thoughts all these indications made up an image not unlike that of the fashion plate torn from its context of which she had reminded him at their first meeting and he looked at her with indifference wondering why she had come with an abrupt gesture she pulled the pin from her heavily plumbed hat tossed it to the divan and said dear master i just want to sit with you and have you talk to me she dropped down beside her hat clasped her thin hands about her thin knee and broke out as if she had already forgotten that she wanted him to talk to her do you know i've made up my mind to begin to live again to live my own life i mean to be my real me after all these dreadful months of exile from myself i see now that that is my real duty just as it is yours just as it is that of every artist and every creature don't you feel as i do don't you agree with me we must save beauty for the world before it is too late we must save it out of this awful wreck and ruin it sounds ridiculously presumptuous doesn't it to say we in talking of a great genius like you and a poor little speck of dust like me but after all there is the same instinct in us the same craving the same desire to realize beauty though you do it so magnificently and so so objectively and i she paused unclasped her hands and lifted her lovely bewildered eyes i do it only by a ribbon in my hair a flower in a vase a way of living a curtain or placing a lacquer screen in the right light but i oughtn't to be ashamed of my limitations do you think i ought surely everyone ought to be helping to save beauty everyone is needed even the humblest and most ignorant of us or else the world will be all death and ugliness and after all ugliness is the only real death isn't it she drew a deep breath and added it has done me good already to sit here and listen to you campton a few weeks previously would have been amused or perhaps merely irritated but in the interval he had become aware in himself of the same irresistible craving to live as she put it and as he had heard it formulated that very day by the morning mother who had so sharply rebuked mrs brant the spring was stirring them all in their different ways secreting in them the sap which craved to burst into bridge parties or the painting of masterpieces or a consciousness of the need for new shirts but what am i in all this mrs talcott rushed on sparing him the trouble of a reply nothing but the match that lights the flame sometimes i imagine that i might put what i mean into poetry i have scribbled a few things you know but that's not what i was going to tell you it's you dear master who must set us the example of getting back to our work our real work whatever it is what have you done in all these dreadful months the real you nothing and the world will be the poorer for it ever after master you must paint again you must begin to-day campton gave an uneasy laugh oh paint he waved his hand toward the office files of 
the friends of French art. There's my work, not the real you. It's your dummy's work, just as my nursing has been mine. Oh, one did one's best, but all the while beauty and art and the eternal things were perishing. And what will the world be like without them? I shan't be here, Campton growled. But your son will. She looked at him profoundly. You know I know your son. We're friends. And I'm sure he will feel as I feel. He would tell you to go back to your painting. For months past, any allusion to George had put Campton on his guard, stiffening him with impoverished defences. But this appeal of Mrs. Tolkett's found him unprepared, demoralised by the spring sweetness and by his secret ease of his son's connivance with it. What was war, any war, but an old European disease, an ancestral blood madness seizing on the first pretext to slake its frenzy? Campton reminded himself again that he was the son of free institutions of a country in no way responsible for the centuries of sinister diplomacy which had brought Europe to ruin and was now trying to drag down America. George was right. The Brants were right. This young woman, through whose lips Campton's own secret instinct spoke, was right. He was silent so long that she rose with the anxious frown that appeared to be her way of blushing, and flattered out, I'm boring you. I'd better go. She picked up her hat and held its cataract of feathers poised above her slanted head. Wait, let me do you like that, Campton cried. It had never before occurred to him that she was paintable, but as she stood there with uplift arm, the long line flowing from her wrist to her hip suddenly wound itself about him like a net. Me, she stammered, standing motionless as if frightened by the excess of her triumph. Do you mind? he queried, and hardly hearing her flattered out mind, when it was just what I came for. He dragged forth an easel, flung it on the first canvas he could lay hands on, though he knew it was the wrong shape and size, and found himself instantly transported into the lost world, which was the only real one. End of chapter 19. Recording by Chad from Ballyclare.